So please, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, thank you, Ivo, and thank you for having me here. Thank you, Annalen. I know we have corresponded on multiple occasions. Um, it is with great pleasure that I'm here to discuss a topic that speaks very closely to my heart, and it is something of, uh, related to a field research that I have been doing in Peru last uh, summer. As you can see from my name, um, I have a unique name, so I do have indigenous Peruvian roots. So my father is indigenous Peruvian, and my mother is South Korean, which explains probably a certain type of profile that you see from the face emanating towards you visibly. Um, so I hope um, you will be able to enjoy the talk, and which, again, it speaks very personally to me. It's a very personal case, um, and I think I'll try to explain why that is um, as I go along with the presentation. So um, I have uh, prepared the presentation today in both languages. So I have it both in Spanish and also in English. And that is in part because I want to uh, try to bring in both sides of the spectrum, um, just in case there were any Spanish speakers in the room. Um, this might be a way also to engage them as well. And also, um, I'm paying respect to the victims of forced sterilization, obviously, if that's the case. I would have also had to include it in indigenous different languages, but I couldn't get to that level yet, hopefully in the future, which is the reason why I have it pre uh, prepared both in Spanish and also in English. So hopefully um, it doesn't uh, make you a little bit dizzy and makes it a little bit more clear. So first I will uh, discuss a little bit further about the methods and field research that I have done in Peru and try to explain how transitional justice and human rights violations within the context of Peru and how forced sterilization cases are related to that matter. And going back to what Ivo said, uh, perhaps this is a case that is more of a criticism towards transitional justice mechanisms that exist in Peru. Um, so it might add to the fact that there are some vacuums of research and also addressing matters related to this particular population that needs to be brought up for future transitional justice research and also implementation as well. And then I will also talk about intersectionality, which is also something that Ivo mentioned. And very much uh, the research becomes an intersection of both transitional justice, gender, and also even um, borrowing ideas from critical race studies. So I hope you will um, be able to enjoy this as much as I, I enjoy doing this research. In reality, I'm looking at a twofold question. The first question is, how have indigenous people's rights been situated in transitional justice efforts in Peru? And the second question, why have indigenous people's rights violations of forced sterilization not been included in transitional justice processes? So I'm basically both looking at the processes and also causal mechanisms related to the question of why, and uh, to try to look at it in multiple different lenses as well. In terms of the methods that I uh, conducted or that I did, I engaged primarily in expert interviews. And I'll show you the list of individuals, and I'll try to explain the reason why I have done those expert interviews. And I have also done a discourse analysis of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report. Oftentimes in my slides, I refer to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as a CVR, which it goes back to the Spanish name. So in case I confuse anyone, please let me know. You can stop me, and I'll try to explain a little bit further about that. In particular, I do the discourse analysis to primarily see where forced sterilization case is mentioned. And if it is mentioned, in what social context, in what political context it is being mentioned, and if it has been omitted, what the reasoning for the omission actually was. Bless you. 
and I also tried to examine uh, symbolic reparation through sites of memories. And this is primarily to see how forced sterilization, this case in particular, figures into the symbolic reparations discourse, whether or not, for instance, it is or it is not included. And again, um, I've been to the sites of memory, so this is, again, a part of the field research bless you, um, that has done as well. So these are the list of interviewees that I have. Um, I forgot to include one individual, but I'll try to explain this a little bit further. It's eight interviews in total and two public testimonies, and the two public testimonies are victims' testimonies. From the top, as you can see, I have interviewed the president of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Peru. Very much important to understand the reason why, if it has been omitted or if it has been included, the reasoning to uh, the mandate of the commission and the decisions that they have made. I have also uh, interviewed individuals from non-governmental organizations, such as Ana Maria Vidal, she's the Secretaria Ejecutiva de la Coordinadora Nacional de Derechos Humanos, she's the Executive Secretary of the National Coordinator of Human Rights, which is an organization that basically, it's almost like the center that coordinates the different work of numerous different human rights NGOs within Peru. And I got her interview in particular because I wanted to see her take on the NGO type of movement and the discourse that was occurring around this theme. I also interviewed academics, uh, Rocio Santisteban, who is also a very famous um, journalist, and Carmela Chavez, she's also a sociologist and an academic, Stephanie Rousseau, um, also an academic. Francisco Soberon is the founder of a very famous organization. This is the primary organization, Asociación Pro Derechos Humanos, or the Association for Human Rights. And this organization is the one that administers and is in charge of sites of memory. So this goes back to the symbolic reparations part. So I tried to make sure that I had a mix of experts on this matter that spoke both from the NGO perspective and you, as you can see from the public victim's testimony perspective, so I got a victim's perspective as well, as well as um, the academic perspective and the commissioner's perspectives to try to bring in more of a whole rounded discussion regarding this particular case. As you can see from the last um, name of the interviewee, probably the last name looks somewhat similar to mine. Yes, uh, it is a relative of mine who happens to be a nurse and she agreed to be interviewed and I wanted to get her take on it as well because she was in the health post where certain sterilization practices did happen. So I also wanted to get a little bit of, a, I guess, the health professionals who were also involved and what they had to say regarding this particular case for sterilization. Um, and I can explain a little bit further in terms of other types of testimonies that I have also gathered. Um, so as I already mentioned, I'm specifically first looking at the case uh, for sterilization within the markers of Truth Commission work. This was actually an offshoot of an earlier work I had done on transitional justice processes in Peru. And I was primarily looking at compliance with um, adopted transitional justice norms. And that was um, actually a book, a manuscript that I'm currently revising um, in, uh, with the University of Pennsylvania Press. While doing research on Truth Commission work, reparations and prosecutions, I came across an interesting case, which is this particular case, which is of a different style and different type of human rights violation that did not seem to fit the pattern of the other types of human rights violations that had occurred during the internal armed conflict. And more than anything else, um, the fact that forced sterilization was missing 
from the final report of the Truth Commission report really spoke to me in different ways and called my attention. And to my curiosity to add more to the interest of this case, this was a case that kept being brought up over and over again in 2016 during the presidential election periods as almost like a, this campaign slogan and as a propaganda tool from each political party that was trying to spearhead their own campaign, accusing one another, pointing fingers, and things like that, primarily between Keiko Fujimori and uh, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, who used to be our president, but no longer is, and I'll try to also explain how that uh, actually matters. And Keiko Fujimori, she was the daughter of Alberto Fujimori, who was one of our presidents as well, and I'll try to explain a little bit about him within the internal armed conflict um, status within Peru. But she was very much aware of the forced sterilization practices that were going on in Peru, and she has yet to stand any kind of trial or any kind of um, be held accountable for any kind of human rights crimes that she herself knew, which might have been even enough for mediated authorship to be charged on that matter as well. So let me try to bring you in line with more of the timeline regarding how this case actually fits into the internal armed conflict and at the same time, why I think it's such a strong puzzle and an interesting puzzle to look at. Um, from 1980 to 2000, you can see that the internal armed conflict took place. And this is the official designated two decades from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report. So I'm relying on their uh, periodic uh, categorization. From 1996 to 2001, that's when the PSRPF, also known as the Program of Health, Reproductive Health and Family Planification, which was a disguised name for forced sterilization practices took place. So it does fall, as you can see, within the markers of the internal armed conflict, at least in terms of a timeline. Interestingly enough, um, however, as I already mentioned, it doesn't get included in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, and that's something that I will come back to in a little bit. In 2000 to 2001, we have a ruptured regime transition that takes place. That's borrowing the words from Lind and Stefan regarding a regime transition, and that has to do with Alberto Fujimori sending in his faxed resignation from Japan. So we have a sudden uh, regime transition. And from 2001, as I already mentioned before, we have the Comisión de la Verdad y Reconciliación, or the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which completes their final report in 2003. 2006, we have uh, reparations actually taking place. This is the Integral Plan of Reparations, or the PIR. And we do have a conviction coming out in 2009. Alberto Fujimori is convicted for crimes against humanity, among other things, related to Barrio Saltos, the massacre that took place of civilians in a um, poor Lima neighborhood, and also the La Cantuta University massacre, which if you would like to know more about, I can talk more about that because a good colleague of mine is actually um, the victim's family member in um, the La Cantuta case. So that's the case that Fujimori was convicted for for 25 years. Uh, but unfortunately, as I already mentioned before, um, our most recent president has had to resign because Alberto Fujimori has been freed last year, December 24th, um, so Christmas Eve, when nobody really pays attention to these things, on humanitarian grounds. Apparently he was sick. Uh, I'm not sure to which extent that's actually true, but he was sick and he was released, uh, which is the reason why there's many different uh, research questions that come to spark in terms of where accountability stands in the case of Peru. So that's just a general overview of the timeline and the context of where my case actually stands. Again, from 1996 to 2001, 
So it does fall within the markers of what is considered to be the internal armed conflict. So forced sterilization, as I already mentioned before, 1996 to 2001, uh, officially the Ministry of Health in Peru designates these as surgical procedures of sterilization performed on a person against their will or without their free and informed consent. Women predominantly of rural, poor, indigenous communities were not provided the consent form, nor informed of other contraceptive options, uh, and intimidated to committing to surgery, and even deprived of liberty with being locked in waiting rooms prior to the surgery. Um, so going back to the uh, Edith Carranza Caballero's comment, in certain cases they were voluntary. So there are cases where sterilization did take place, where it was voluntary, for, but for the predominant majority of cases they were not voluntary and they were forced into that situation. So let me give you a little bit of an interesting anecdote from one of the public testimonies that can perhaps liven up the mood a little bit regarding this very grave case of human rights violation or crime against humanity. Luisa Pinedo Rango, she was an indigenous woman from Shipibo of Ucayali, which is in the Amazonian area of Peru. She recalls how on two different occasions, government health officials came to her native Amazonian community to inform her about family planning. Then on the second visit, they urged her to undergo surgery and they forced her on a boat and they took her and other indigenous women to the health center. And they forcefully gave her an anesthesia without any information as to what was going on. And she only speaks her native tongue, so she doesn't um, speak Spanish either. And she recalls that she woke up um, at the health center or at the health post and was in pain, but they let her go. And that was the last time that she was informed of any information. In other cases, other victims have also reported that they were given food um, or different types of rice or grains as a mechanism to bring them to be forcefully um, sterilized. In a case that I will refer to a little bit more substantially in a little bit, um, the woman was told that she could not have more than five children, that it was a violation of law, which we do not have a law like that in Peru. You can have as many children as you want. We don't have a problem of overpopulation either. That's also um, a statement coming directly from the president of the Truth Commission. Uh, but nonetheless, um, they were coerced and manipulated with wrongful information to undergo these types of surgeries. So the way that this actually took place, and I think it becomes very, very disturbing as it goes on. So if I'm disturbing you enough, I think I've done uh, my job in terms of presenting today. Health officials performed 272,028 sterilizations to a majority of poor rural indigenous Quechua speaking women. So the previous woman that I mentioned to you before, she's from the Amazonian area. So she was um, part of the minority of other indigenous women who were also forcefully sterilized. But the majority of the victims of forced sterilization were actually Quechua speakers. And Quechua, again, indigenous tongue. Uh, my father is a Quechua speaker. Um, I unfortunately can only say a couple of words with my hand. I can count on my hand. So it's very quite unfortunate for me. But nonetheless, um, there is an intersection of class um, and ethnicity that I will refer to towards the end of my talk. While it is true, as I already mentioned before, that there were some voluntary sterilizations, in other cases, coercion and manipulation of information were very much commonplace. So there were these things called health festivals, 
or um, fertility festivals that took place, predominantly in rural Andean areas. And um, they were supposed to be festivals where women would come and they would get more informed or provide more information about the types of contraceptive methods that they could have access to, including the voluntary surgical sterilization. However, these festivals also ended up being moments when women were coerced into also being forcefully sterilized. So a festival in general has a very positive meaning, but clearly the results of this situation um, pointed to something of much more grave and a violation of human rights. In the words of Ana Maria Vidal, um, these are her words directly, it was the trashing of human rights in this case of indigenous women. So in Spanish that would be era la pastorización de los derechos, en este caso de las mujeres indígenas. And this was clearly the case. Um, indigenous populations, again, I will try to explain this towards the end of my talk. Um, indigenous women in particular are considered to be and as undiplomatic as it sounds, almost a discardable population um, that no one really cares about, uh, that no one really pays any attention to. And this case, I think, demonstrated this uh, to the maximum point, to the extent to which um, indigenous women could be trashed and their rights as human beings could also be trashed in different ways. So let me try to connect this case back to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, and its report. So the Comisión de la Verdad y Reconciliación, as you can see, or the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the mandate of the commission covered all forms of violations of fundamental rights, including acts perpetrated by the state and armed groups from 1980 to 2000. By armed groups here, they were specifically referring to leftist guerrilla forces, which included Sendero Luminoso, which is also known as the Shining Path, and the MRTA, which I don't know, most people pay more attention to Sendero, but there was also MRT as well, the Movimiento Revolucionario Tupac Amaro. Um, I can explain a little bit further where they got their name, which is very unfortunate because Tupac Amaro was actually a real great revolutionary leader during the colonial period. But nonetheless, um, they had interesting ideas about how the world should work, and the state obviously also was pushing back in multiple different ways. The CBR also carried an ethical obligation to criticize society's blindness, also referred to as ceguera, towards human rights violations and engage in a moral restoration of citizens on the basis of conocimiento, reconocimiento, arrepentimiento y perdón. So that means understanding, recognition, repentance and pardon. I think part of the reason why the commission and the type of mandate that they had was so expansive and at the same time somewhat more based on morals and ethics, had also to do with the types of people that encompassed the commission, which included academics, there were numerous philosophers, sociologists, religious leaders, and also lawyers. Um, so they had a variety of people that were coming into place to try to come up with uh, the true truth of what had happened during the internal armed conflict. The mandate of the commission did not extend to hold anyone legally accountable. However, they could make recommendations, which was the final list of recommendations that they made, and those recommendations had to be abided by the state. So there was a little bit more of a strong push that they could have in terms of getting their mandate through or some of their recommendations through in different ways. For instance, the commission expected diligent action from the Ministry of Public of the human rights violations and that when in fact after a prudential 
lapse of 30 days, no evidence of action existed, it would ask the Ombudsman's office to intervene in formulating accusations against perpetrators. So there was a little bit more of a weight that was given to the Truth Commission in terms of seeking some level of a judicial recourse or some level of criminal accountability against perpetrators of human rights violations. The commissioners also sought to provide an interpretation of the underlying causes of violence and as I already mentioned before, they also recommended multiple different uh, recommendations. Um, they sustained that justice could not only be obtained through punitive actions of the state, meaning criminal proceedings, but that it had to be complemented in other dimensions, which also included reparations and things like that. And I will try to um, expand on that a little bit further. So um, in total, from 1980 to 2000, the commission found that 69,000 people, roughly, were killed or disappeared. And I say specifically roughly, I would like to highlight that word because those numbers are being currently debated. Um, FBAF, which is um, the organization that deals primarily with forensic evidence regarding uh, Peru's disappeared, uh, has actually come out to state that there are more disappeared um, entries from the Truth Commission report that were not included. So those numbers are likely going to increase. So roughly an estimated 69,000 people were killed or disappeared in the span of two decades. 26,259 of them were in the Department of Ayacucho, uh, which is where uh, Sendero Luminoso also took the majority of its activities. And a disproportionate majority of the victims resided in poor rural areas and spoke indigenous languages as their mother tongue. So there was a profile of the victims related to the internal armed conflict period that already pointed to a deep-rooted inequality within Peruvian society that played a part in the violence, particularly against the indigenous population. So here we do have a pattern that indigenous populations were the majority of the victims of the internal armed conflict, which again is another pattern that we see in the forced sterilization case. The commission also established the state responsibility for 37% of the deaths and disappearances and Sendero Luminoso for the rest of the deaths and disappearances. So as much as I also like to criticize the state on multiple different occasions, it's also important to emphasize that these leftist guerrilla forces also had or partook in the major responsibility regarding the number of individuals that had died. However, as you can see in the bolded letters, forced sterilization cases were neglected. So um, as I started doing my discourse analysis, um, I found some interesting information. The fact that sexual violence was a persistent practice during the internal armed conflict that affected women, primarily of low economic status from rural areas, 75% of whom were Quechua speakers. So the TRC or the CVR included information on sexual violence. So sexual violence cases were included. And again, 75% of the women who were subject to sexual violence were Quechua speakers. So another pattern, so there's an overlapping pattern that indigenous women are the ones that continue to be victims or indigenous peoples um, continue to be the victim. Interestingly, in the discourse analysis of the final report, there is no mention of forced sterilization as a human rights case. There's just no mention of this case whatsoever. But PSRPF, was a sexual violation, or you could consider it as an indigenous people's rights violation, as a women's rights violation, or as a case of sexual violation. But the state failed to recognize this as part of the TRC's official report. 
And the reasoning was as follows. The mandate of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission covered all forms of violations of fundamental rights, including acts perpetrated by state and armed groups from 1980 to 2000. Because it was primarily looking at the causal mechanisms of what had led to the political violence of this period between the state and the subversive forces or the leftist groups, this case was not seen as a case of a state versus leftist group situation. Thus, it was not included. That's the common explanation that I kept getting back from both the president of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the NGO leaders, which was very surprising um, because they should have been very critical of that point, but they just kept reiterating that, that it just did not fall within the political markers of the internal armed conflict and violence. Although there is a continuing systematic pattern of indigenous peoples being targeted for different types of rights violations that were occurring during this time. So technically, you could have looked at this case even as a case that did see the state having violence against indigenous populations, or rather look at the internal armed conflict period in totality as the state and the leftist groups against the indigenous populations, and that would have still made sense. But nonetheless, um, and I guess that's a criticism regarding this particular Truth Commission, which I have a lot of respect for, and I know the work that they have done. But nonetheless, um, because it didn't fall within their markers of what they were examining, they decided not to include this case. The non-inclusion of this case has actually made it more difficult for women who have been victims of forced sterilization to seek accountability. So there's another layer of victimhood that gets added on top of the physical abuse that they have suffered from society. Um, in terms of seeking accountability in the future process. So let me bring you another layer of sadness, because I, I seem to um, enjoy to do that, on symbolic reparations and where the forced sterilization case stands. But specifically, the symbolic reparations that I'm looking at um, constitute official apologies, uh, rehabilitation, the change of names of public spaces, the establishment of days of commemoration, and the creation of museums and parks, and specifically among those, I'm looking at sites of memory. Um, so the symbolic reparations were recommended by the CBR. So in, in part, you might say, oh, the state really has abided by numerous of the recommendations um, given by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. In part, that's actually true. Uh, Peru is seen as a success case on multiple different ends. There's a book that Sofia Mascher pr um, published about looking at post 10 years of the CBR and what accomplishments have been done. And I also looked at it um, and I followed up a little bit further with other different cases. So it is a case compared to other countries that you might say, well, there are some positive ends that have come out. But in other ways, uh, clearly that has not necessarily been the case. Uh, so, as I already mentioned before, the CBR included creation of places of memory, museums, and publications honoring victims of human rights violations as part of the symbolic reparations that they recommended. One of the first sites of memories that was created out of this uh, process was El Ojo Que Llora, which basically means the eye that cries. And this was actually not a state-led effort in terms of a site of memory. This was a memorial that was created out of a private civil society-driven initiative by a sculptor, Lika Mutal, who passed away, unfortunately. The memorial was opened for public viewing on August 2005, and it was to constitute or envision as a part of a series of a promenade of memory 
also known as the Alameda de la Memoria, which would include a photo exhibition, um, El Ojo Que Llora, and then also um, the Kipu Project, which I don't know if you know much about Peruvian indigenous culture, but Kipus were things that um, indigenous uh, populations used to use to record words and numbers. Um, so if you look at any um, documentary regarding the Incan Empire, for instance, you will see like Kipu, these were like nods. And so the Kipu project has been launched online and they also do include uh, victims' testimonies, primarily of women and what they suffered through during the internal armed conflict. So El Ojo Que Llora um, did, uh, was created, and the second site of memory, El Lugar de la Memoria, was also created. Um, interestingly, um, I am Peruvian. Uh, <laughs> we don't seem to uh, do a lot of things on our own very well, effectively, so we got, um, and I'm being very critical of my own government in saying that, um, this was created out of an international scandal that began with a donation of $11 million from the German government. Uh, for the creation of a museum with a permanent collection. Uh, there were a lot of back and forth that took place and afterwards it was finally set up, but there were questions as to the location of the site of memory, of the, uh, the loom in particular, Lugar de la Memoria, because it was, um, originally it was supposed to have more accessibility for victims and people of different social classes, but it ended up being created at a area that is difficult to access by car, and uh, well, I guess there's a little bit of a walk that you can take from Miraflores, which is a very wealthy neighborhood in Lima. Uh, so there are many different questions from victims associations saying, why was it created in Miraflores, like overlooking this you know, beautiful beach, that's great, but um, does it really um, reflect victims' um, memories and recognition of victimhood regarding the internal armed conflict. And that's a question and currently it's being also debated because there have been many different questions as to the running of loom in different ways and things like that. But both sides of memory, um, unfortunately, do not include forced sterilization victims. So that's another um, key aspect. So I wanted to also try to visualize this for you. This is um, a picture that I took with the consent of the group that is currently administering the place, which by the way, the memorial receives no funding from the state. It is currently being administered by donations and there is no formal donation. So I donated um, and there's a small little group of activists and academics that donate, but that's it. There's like 10 people. And out of that fund that they get every month, they pay the gardener who is a half-time. And so he can't really be there all the time. And these little pebbles are supposed to symbolize, and as you can see, there's the ear of the death of each person when they took place. And each pebble has the name of the victim, and it just goes around the entire um, area. It's almost like a little uh, circular type of concentric circles, a series of them. Uh, that are centered on the middle um, of an eye. This is a new place that was created very recently, and this was a question that I had specifically for the NGO people that were creating this place. This was also an initiative that was done through donations, and this was um, a little garden that was done for activists and victims also of human rights violations. What's interesting about this new place is, again, it doesn't have anyone 
um, that has been working on forced sterilization cases, nor any mention of victims of forced sterilization. And when I asked that question directly to those who were administering the place, and also to the group that is uh, currently administering the place, meaning the 10 academics plus NGO individuals, they said that it didn't fall within the markers of the political violence of the internal armed conflict, that therefore these victims of forced sterilizations or their cases could not be included. This is a group of victims, again, that gets kind of shunned in the middle of this whole process of transitional justice and symbolic reparations and truth commissions and even prosecutions regarding what has happened and almost uh, left on their own to figure out what to do next in terms of their victimhood, in terms of their recognition within society. That is the main eye that cries, which is the reason why it is called El Ojo Que Llora, and that was a sculpture that was done by Lika Mutan. And as you can see in the background, there's a little concentric circle taking place. Um, there's numerous activities that have been done. Now the place has been rented a couple of times for forced sterilization victims to come to do their little honoring moments. But still they have not been included. And again, um, the person that was pushing for forced sterilization victims to be included, she has pushed for it. And she's the president of DEMUS, um, Maria Isabel Sedano. But the group that controls the administration of this place, which is another NGO, which is actually the Asociación Pro Derechos Humanos, they have pushed back saying it doesn't fall within the markers of the internal armed conflict. So again, a victimhood that sits in the middle and is excluded in other ways. So I um, just wanted to briefly touch upon other measures of exclusion in terms of trials. Um, in the case of forced sterilization. Um, again, uh, this data might be a little bit dated, but it's from 2005 to 2012. Um, there were 109, 191 grave cases of human rights violations that were um, tried. As you can see, 113 were acquitted, 66 were convicted, and 12 were issued mixed or partial convictions, and these were all cases related to the internal armed conflict. The majority of the cases that were convicted were cases where Sendero Luminoso was responsible for something, not necessarily the state. Four sterilization cases were not included in any of the 191 cases from 2005 to 2012. In case you might think that that data is a little bit dated, uh, this data is a little bit more um, up to date. 2017-2074 uh, cases were put aside by the public prosecutor's office and these were cases of forced sterilization that were heavily documented by an NGO called the IDL or the Instituto de Defensa Legal and that is the one that is uh, basically sponsoring the lawyers to take care of this particular case. Um, they were put aside by the public prosecutor's office for not enough information. So that is another way that um, you might say that impunity has been rampant in this case. Another case that impunity has been rampant is related to Maria Mestanza's case, which might surprise you in different ways, because this was actually a case that was settled between the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights and the Peruvian state in 2004. So this is a case that was already settled. Um, and the state agreed to pay reparations and also to seek justice in their own ways as they could, but nothing has actually been done with this case. Maria Mestanza's case was a case, as I already mentioned uh, before, um, related to an anecdote. She was the one who was told by health officials, you cannot have more than five children. You, have more, you're gonna, you already have five children, which means 
you need to get forcefully, you need to be sterilized because that's the only way, because if not, you're going to be violating the law, you'll have to pay fines. So she had to go, she underwent surgery. This is misinformed surgery um, and she was sterilized. Unfortunately, she suffered complications after the surgery and she, um, because she was living in a rural area, she could not get the proper treatment and so she passed away. And so her husband brought this case up to a local NGO and they were able to um, somehow uh, bring this case up to the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights. Mind you, back in those days, the way that this worked was you literally sent in the facts of the case, you would document it and you would send the facts to the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights. Um, I have a friend, again, with the La Cantuta case, she did the same thing, she faxed it in. And that's how it worked. And if you didn't have a fax in rural areas, you came to Lima. And you would, you know, ask if anybody had a fax or NGOs that had faxes, that's how you would send in. Um, so this case was um, brought into the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, but again, one that hasn't been settled. You might say that there has been some positive development regarding um, April 25, 2018. The district attorney, Luis Landa, he ordered charges of criminal responsibility to be brought against Fujimori for the forced sterilization of 2,166 women. But this is an order from the district attorney that easily can be overturned within the context of Peru and politics that unfortunately seems to dominate more. Um, if you look at the scores of judicial independence within Peru, it's actually um, the scores are in a mixed situation where it's partial judicial independence that the judiciary actually has. So politics seems to dominate more than um, the judicial system itself. So that is also somewhat of a problem. This is the public testimony that I um, was also a part of. And um, you might say that there is a little bit of a um, international, uh, intergovernmental or international NGO spotlight on this case. This was in 2017. Um, the UN was sponsoring this testimony. It was also being sponsored by the Canadian Embassy of Lima. And it was also being sponsored by multiple local NGOs, including um, NGOs that represented indigenous peoples, such as Onamiap, um, and Demus was also there <coughs> as well. And in this public testimony is where I was able to gather a lot of the evidence from the victims and what they had to say. Uh, this is another public testimony. This is from Esperanza Wayama. And she specifically was discussing how um, they, um, she was three months pregnant and health officials knew about it and they also forced her, um, forced um, anesthesia on her and she specified, please do not take out my kid, um, I prefer to die, uh, but they did that. Uh, and so these are just one of a few cases of forced sterilizations that have taken place. In the words of Ana Maria Vidal, these are perpetuations of intersectional discrimination against indigenous people's rights, even through transitional justice policies that have neglected uh, forced sterilization cases. So let me try to bring this back to what Ivo was mentioning at the very beginning about how this case represents different intersections. And again, I'm borrowing the ideas from critical race studies um, with scholars such as Crenshaw that theorizes how experiences of women of color, in this case, indigenous women, 
are frequently the product of intersecting patterns of both racism and sexism, and that their intersectional identity as both women and of color marginalizes them further. And in this case, it's one where you see um, race, class, ethnicity, and sexualities um, being intersecting together on multiple different ends, and how the crime of forced sterilization actually represents a structural inequality embedded in historical power relationships between the dominant white society and the marginalized indigenous sectors. So a little bit of a Venn diagram type of notion for you. Um, so uh, this is an intersection between ethnicity and uh, class. So it goes back to a colonial mentality. And oftentimes, I know uh, people are hesitant to bring in um, legacies of colonialism when you discuss stuff related to human rights that have happened in the modern period. But unfortunately, I think it's, it's necessary in this case to discuss this a little bit further. Um, and uh, again, some of the words that I will use might be a little bit uh, difficult to digest or a little bit um, hard to understand, but please let me know um, if that becomes a problem. It was assumed that the process of whitening the predominant indigenous identity would help improve Peru's racial composition and solve the ills of society. So that was the idea that was emanating from the colonial period. Implicitly in this idea was the association of class stratification with ethnic identity, particularly of whiteness with higher economic class. And that is really the case currently at the time. Indigenous peoples comprise the largest ethnic groups, and even though right now they also do as well. And in the colonial times, they also belong to lower classes of society. That also happens to be the case nowadays too. They resided in the rural highland areas. That happens to be the case nowadays too. And in the colonial periods, they looked to Cusco to represent their national identity. In part, that identity um, identification still continues on today. According to 2016 government statistics, the highest levels of poverty were recorded in Andean rural areas and the Amazonian region. Um, and I have yet to do a spatial analysis um, using um, GIS models to try to um, correlate the evidence of these cases and uh, the areas of where these have happened, but um, I'm only doing a very basic thing today, so I apologize for that. Um, and roughly at 47.8% and 39.3% were the poverty levels of the highest poverty uh, level regions in Peru. Interestingly, and I'm going to skip ahead and come back to that slide, so I'm sorry if I'm being a little bit uh, jumping over. The green underlined areas are the areas with the highest rates of poverty that coincides with large indigenous populations that coincides with forced sterilization victims. So there is an overlap, there is a correlation, um, an intersection between ethnic identity and class that was taking place. And related to this notion, at the base of the PSRPF's campaign was the association between reproduction and poverty as a problem linked to poor indigenous populations that needed quote-unquote remedy. Um, remedy meaning some level of control in terms of the family planning. And the family planning program was selectively thus applied to the people who were identified as the ones who produced poverty in society. And this, these are the words uh, directly from Salomon Lerner. The Defensoria de Pueblos reports on the AQB cases or the forced sterilization cases describes how 38.5% of the cases of irregular administration, meaning forced sterilization, 
were found in the departments of Ayacucho, again, indigenous, predominant indigenous areas, Huancabelica, another indigenous populated area, with the highest poverty indicators in Peru. So specific targeting of areas of poverty, which tends to overlap with areas of indigenous populations. So there is a clear pattern of evidence that you can try to see in this case. Other reported complaints were registered in more impoverished Andean and Amazonian areas, along with farming communities near provincial capitals. Um, so again, let me go back to that Venn diagram. There was an overlap. And interestingly, um, these are the words um, from another NGO personnel. Dejaron matar a tanta gente indígena. And this is in general regarding the internal armed conflict, that they let numerous indigenous people die. And again, this goes back to the notion of the indigenous population as being a discardable population, as being a population that doesn't necessarily need to be um, respected or recognized in different ways. The Ministry of Health officials actually blamed the victims, stating that they ought to have asked for translators if they did not understand the language. And oftentimes they said, well, if they didn't understand Spanish, they should have. But the majority of the Ministry of Health officials that would be performing these sterilization practices did not also speak indigenous languages. There might be one or two. So the nurse that I mentioned before, um, my relative, she did speak Quechua. So in her, her case, she was able to explain and there were voluntary sterilizations that took place. But in other cases, they were forced into sterilization. And I know at times that's hard for people to understand. How can people be forcefully sterilized and put into anesthesia? This happens uh, because of the power dynamics between class and ethnicity that takes place as well. In terms of gender and um, class, and again, there's another overlapping, continuing overlapping dimension regarding ethnicity. The women, I think it's important to find, uh, point out that were victims, were predominantly, again, of indigenous, poor, rural communities, and these were not administered to, or these were not campaigns put towards women in Miraflores, which is a rich neighborhood in Lima, nor San Isidro, or the ladies of San Isidro, as you would say, that live in this like giant, like, beautiful houses, beautiful houses, great houses. But nonetheless, uh, this information never got to be forced on them. But it was forced on um, indigenous women. And victims were seen as the culprit, which is the uh, reason why, in certain cases, when women were first released, sterilized, and they came back home, the men would throw them out of the house because they could no longer reproduce. And reproduction was a very basic thing that was needed and labor um, and agricultural types of societies where you need more hands to be able to um, help with the household chores and also um, agricultural um, picking up and harvest and other things like that. So oftentimes women would be thrown out. What I think is important to find, uh, point out, and I know I'm little bit um, trying to wrap things up, is the fact that this actually developed in defense of women's rights. So originally the family planning program was to promote women's reproductive rights, to try to give them more of a right say within a very conservative Catholic society such as that of Peru. But in reality what it ended up being was it targeted a specific indigenous women uh, group that ended up uh, being the victim of this particular case. Uh, the PSRPF originally was designed to provide surgical intervention to both men, vasectomies, and women, so give them some level of information. But in reality, what it ended up being, if you look at the Ministry of Health documents from that period, it specifies women of fertile age. 
So there was already uh, indirect uh, communique that was being issued regarding who had to be targeted for forced sterilization, which uh, begs the question um, at what point um, this case had or had not been um, included. I will leave it there. Um, if you have any questions or um, comments, I would really appreciate this. Thank you so much. <laughs>